0: All right, Uh, our sermon this morning is called The Humble Entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that we traditionally celebrate what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And many of you are familiar with the story from the Bible. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration for the last time. It was just a week before he would be crucified for the forgiveness of sins. And all the people, when they saw Jesus riding towards Jerusalem on a donkey, came out and laid palm branches before him. And they began shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! Hosanna! And everything feels joyful and exuberant and like a victorious celebration, like the parade in Philly when the Eagles won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. However, the more you look at the story and understand it, the more you see that from God's point of view, it's not really a triumphal entry at all. It's more of a humble entry. And so this morning, I'm going to be sharing this message called The Humble Entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Alright, now, we're going to look at this story from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, and maybe bring a few more details from the other Gospels as well. So while you're opening to there, let me just set the scene for you. There's a fairly large crowd that has accompanied Jesus from Galilee on his way to Jerusalem for this Passover. And remember that um, Jewish people came not only from all over Israel for the Passover, but from all over the Roman Empire. And so, it's been estimated that more than 2 million people were probably in Jerusalem during this time. And people were very excited about this Jesus, and and they had heard how he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and people were talking that all over Judea and Jerusalem, word had spread about this astonishing miracle. And beginning in verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem, and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, it doesn't say it outright, but we think that Jesus had set up this with the owner of the donkey in advance, because up until now, he has really only told people privately that he's the Messiah. And he told them not to spread that around. But now, in the manner that he enters Jerusalem, he will be for the first time announcing to the world that he is, in fact, the Messiah. So going on in verse 4, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Zephaniah. Now, the prophet that he's referring to here, Zephaniah. It's in chapter 5, and it's a quote from Zephaniah chapter 9, verse 9. And it says, Say to the daughter of Ziah, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, look at that phrase again. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, this verse in Zephaniah had long been considered by the rabbis and the Jewish people to be a messianic prophecy. They believed that when the Messiah came to set up his kingdom, he would fulfill this prophecy by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. As a matter of fact, they believed this so much that prior to Jesus... There had been a number of people claiming to be the Messiah who had gathered followers and tried to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey in the hopes that the people of Jerusalem would rally around them and take over the city. And in the end, it only resulted in the Romans capturing them and putting them to death because they were only an imitation of the real Messiah. You know, that's part of the devil's playbook. He often tries to lead people astray by imitating the genuine. And so the people knew that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. However, they unfortunately missed the obvious message of this verse. And because they misunderstood the nature of the coming of the Messiah, they missed what this verse was saying. For you see, in the Old Testament, in the prophets, um, when they described the Messiah, they described him in two ways. Uh, He's described in many places as a reigning kingly messiah who would restore the fortunes of israel and make israel the chief among the nations again but he's also described as a suffering servant messiah who atones for the sins of his people and what was difficult to see from their perspective was the time period called the church age that was in between the appearance of the suffering messiah and the reigning messiah Kind of like looking at two mountains in the distance, and from your perspective, they may look like they're right next to each other, but in reality, there's a valley in between, and one is much further away. And so, during this time, there was a very heightened expectation of the coming of this reigning messiah, probably due to the oppressive Roman government and the desire for freedom and liberty. And besides, to the natural mind, a victorious messiah is much more exciting than a suffering messiah. And so they completely missed this idea of a suffering Messiah. Even though uh, Isaiah chapter 53 and Psalm 22 so beautifully displayed how he took up our pain and bore our suffering and how the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, they missed it because they were looking for a reigning Messiah. But Jesus came first as a humble, servant, suffering Messiah. Look at the words of this verse. The very wording of the verse should have given them a clue that their idea of a military messiah who would kick out the Romans was off base. It says, your king comes to you humble. One translation says gentle. Another says lowly, not victorious, not as a warrior. And then it also says that he was riding on a donkey. Now, kings, when they entered a city victoriously, they Usually rode on horses and often they would have their armies parading ahead of them and their captives would be in chains following them And and when Jesus comes back, it's described describes him in Revelation this way as riding on a white horse But the donkey is a symbol of peace And so the entire image of this messianic verse is of a gentle lowly humble king who comes in peace Everything about Jesus first coming is humble and gentle, and servant-oriented. He left the throne in heaven for a stable. He left streets of gold to walk on dusty roads. He left a place where mighty angels worshipped him and did his bidding without question and without delay, to come to a place where many mocked him and lied about him and, and some spit on him and struck him and beat him. He came in his own words not to be served, but to serve. He left a place where there was no sickness or disease to come to a place where there was sickness and disease all around him. And he left a place where there was no death to come to a place where he would be beaten and scourged and crucified and die at the hands of sinful people. Really, to die at our hands, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. You know, And he could have called twelve legions of angels to rescue him and fight for him. But he didn't. Everything about this coming is gentle and humble. And everything about this entry into Jerusalem is lowly and peaceful. There's no armed rebellion here. There's no kicking out the Romans and dethroning Herod to install a new king here. Because he's got a more important mission on his mind. Going on in verse 6 and 7, it says this. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Then in verse 8, it says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. Now, pause there for a second. It says, a very large crowd. Now, who exactly is this crowd? Well, we know from the previous chapters that a fairly sizable entourage from Galilee accompanied him, To Jerusalem, and he seems to be gathering followers uh, along the way as well. And it looks like there's also those in the crowd who had either seen or heard about the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. But then John adds this detail in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. He says, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they went out to meet him. So you've got those who started with him, those who joined him along the way, those who'd heard about Lazarus' resurrection, and now large crowds from Jerusalem are coming out to meet him and escort him into the city. So this is a very large crowd. And in verse 9, it says, they began shouting praises for all the miracles that they had seen. And, And here's what they were shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, when we say or sing Hosanna, Today we mean it as a term of praise, and it is, it has become a word for praise. But in that day, the Greek for this word meant, save us, or save now. So they're shouting to Jesus, save us now, be the Messiah now, save us from the Romans now, now is the time, you're the man. And in one sense, they were right, he is the man, he is the Messiah. He is the one who would save them. And it was the time. It's just that this salvation was not political or military or even just for Israel alone. This salvation was spiritual. It was for the forgiveness of sins. It was for newness of life. It was to restore access to God because He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it was universal. It was for the entire world. It was for all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so they get that he's the Messiah, but they don't really know what that means. Okay, now I want to jump here to Luke's gospel, because he adds a few more important details about the story. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, they knew the Messianic scriptures, and they rightly interpreted the cries of Hosanna to be a strong appeal by the people for Jesus to be the reigning Messiah. And they knew the recent history of the other would-be messiahs entering Jerusalem and the bloodshed that entailed. And so maybe some of them are fearful that this is going to get out of hand and result in bloodshed. And, and maybe some of them are just offended by the idea that uh, Jesus was the messiah. Either way, they want him to make them stop shouting Hosanna. But going on in verse 40, Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones Will cry out. Even though Jesus knows the people are misunderstanding the nature of his messianic mission, he permits and encourages this praise because they are correct in understanding that he is the Messiah. So he lets them praise and says something astonishing to the Pharisees. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out? I mean, how are the stones going to cry out? Well, You know, in Psalm 19, there's this amazing passage in the first four verses, and it says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words into the ends of the world. The idea is, the more you look at and study God's creation, the more it declares His glory. When you study the cosmos, they declare the awesome power and vastness of our God. When you go small and study microbiology and discover the amazing intricacy of the body and all the machines that are operating in a single cell of your body. It declares the intricacy of a vast and infinite mind that is behind all of this. Truly the heavens pour forth speech and declare the glory of God. And Jesus says, "Is if his disciples don't praise him, the creation will. You know, say, I don't know about you, but I don't want creation to praise God louder than I do. I don't want some rock in my front yard to outpraise me. I want my testimony to be like the psalmist in Psalm 145 when he said, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Jesus says if we don't praise him, the creation will. Now, there's one more thing uh, in this scene that I want you to see. It's beginning in verse 41. And it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now pause there for a second. This is kind of odd. Everyone's rejoicing and celebrating, and Jesus endorsed it, but at the same time, he's weeping. And this doesn't mean that he shed a tear or two. The Greek word here means to weep and to wail and to cry out loudly. And so, what a scene this must have been. You know, I really wish that I could have been there and just stopped and observed this scene, almost maybe in slow motion, as everyone is jumping around and praising God, completely oblivious to Jesus, who is sitting on a donkey, weeping and crying out as he approaches Jerusalem. Jesus, why are you weeping? Why are these tears Why and these cries of agony? What's going on? Well, It tells us in the next verses what is going on in his heart. Verse 42, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus, though he accepts and endorses this praise, is weeping because they really don't understand his mission. He sees this disconnect and misunderstanding that is going to lead them into trouble down the road. Going on in verse 43, through these tears, he's wailing loudly, and he says, If only you had known what would bring you peace, but it's hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embarkment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so Jesus is lamenting loudly over this, but but most can't hear his cries because they're being drowned out by the shouts of Hosanna. And all of the stuff that Jesus was weeping over, it eventually happened because They didn't understand his mission. They went looking for another deliverer to drive out the Romans. And in the year 66 AD, they revolted and did succeed in kicking out the Romans for a few years. But it was short-lived. In the year 70 AD, the Romans returned, besieged the city, and captured it. They killed every living person in it. They tore down the city walls and the temple and, and every structure in the city. The only thing still standing is one wall of the temple. And Jesus, seeing all of this in advance, is weeping loudly. And you know what that shows me? God weeps at destruction. God weeps at death. He takes no pleasure in it. Devastation, plagues, death, and wars, they all sadden him greatly. Now, don't miss this. In Jesus here, we see God himself wailing and lamenting and crying out over destruction. He would rather that we know what brings us peace. He doesn't want to miss it as they did. In the case of the people that day, they misunderstood or ignored Jesus' mission, and in the end it resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. But there's something else. There's another judgment coming. Another destruction coming. The Apostle John Describes it this way in the book of Revelation, chapter 20. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is a fearful passage of scripture. And some people avoid it, but I wouldn't be honest with you if I said it wasn't there. And I believe Jesus weeps over this like he did over Jerusalem. I believe just like that day in Jerusalem, Jesus would rather have us recognize the time of his coming, the time of opportunity, and know what brings us peace with God and from God. Did you know that God is often referred to in the New Testament as the God of peace? And often the apostles began or ended their letters by saying something like, grace and peace be with you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there is a peace that we can have with God and from God. And before we can have the peace that comes from God, we must first have peace with God. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you really haven't had a relationship with Him, here's what He says to you in His Word. He says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And John tells us this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, you can't save yourself. I can't save myself. I could never be good enough to earn God's favor, to earn a place with God in heaven. If you're going to be okay with God, if you're going to have peace with God, you have to come to him in humility and in repentance, and in faith in Jesus. And when you come to him this way, we are really following in the humble footsteps of Jesus that day in our story. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul said that we all should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he describes what he's talking about. He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself by coming to a stable, by living among us with no place to lay his head, by ministering to our needs, And then by entering Jerusalem humbly on Palm Sunday. And finally, he died humbly for our sins and the sins of the world so that we can have peace with him and from him. And Paul says that we should have that same mindset. We should be humble towards God. Humility is the heart condition that enables us to receive from God. And James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, it takes humility to receive salvation. To humble yourself and say, I can't save myself, God. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of your standard. And God, I'm really not all that. I'm really not all that great. I need forgiveness from you. I need what Jesus did on the cross for me. It takes humility to surrender your life and control to the Lord Jesus. And so what I'd like to do right now, if you don't have this peace with God and, uh, and you don't really have a relationship with God, but you're saying, you know what, Pastor Paul, I would like to, and you are ready to, to come to God in repentance uh, and a humble attitude and uh, put your faith and trust in everything that Jesus did for you in the cross, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now to do just that, to receive Christ. It's not a magic prayer, but as you put your faith behind this, God's going to do exactly what you ask him to do. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm coming to you today. I confess, I can't save myself. I can't earn my salvation. And I don't measure up to your standard. You are holy and I'm sinful. But I believe that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sins on the cross. And I believe that he rose again from the dead. Would you be my Savior? Be my Lord. I give you control of my heart. Make me a new creation in Christ. And help me live for you every day. In Jesus' name. Amen. My friend, if you've done that, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're coming back to Christ after having been away from Him for a while, can I encourage you, grow in your faith now. Get in the Word. Get in the Bible. Read it every day. Uh, Get into prayer god wants to hear from you even if it's five minutes a day and then let us know what you've done send us an email you can uh, send us an email on our website at lancasterfirst.com and would love to uh, help you grow in your faith in christ now here's just a closing thought for everyone once you have peace with god through jesus christ whether you just started your peace with him just now or you if you've been walking with him all of your life or for a large portion of your life, he also gives you peace from God for daily life. He says things like, The God of peace be with you, and may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way, and grace and peace be yours in abundance, and don't be anxious for anything, but in all things, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He gives us his strength, his grace, his mercy, his peace for every situation that we face. So would you just bow in with me in prayer to close this service and then God bless you, uh, your week and your day. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word today and for worship today. I pray for each one who's been tuning in, God, that your grace, God, and your peace would be the portion of each one For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen.